Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. Welcome back to the Football by Football Podcast. I'm Matt Chatham, your host. Back again here for In the Game, our NFL weekly podcast. Joined as I often am by Brady Papinga, longtime NFL linebacker, BYU linebacker, and uh, a former Packer who, your team, Brady, uh, they're really sort of uh, hanging in there and looking tough. They got a game. Uh, they got a game out of the Chargers. It didn't look like it was going to be when things kicked off, but uh, they really made something of it. Uh, how, how are things going out there in Green Bay? Well, they like the bamboo, Matt. They bend, but they don't break as a defense. I mean, last week with the St. Louis Rams, they gave up over 200 yards on the ground, but they were able to keep the Rams out of the end zone. And the same could be said, but with the passing game this last week versus San Diego Chargers, they gave up over 500 yards, a franchise record for the San Diego Chargers through the air, Phillip Rivers, his career best. But they don't give up more than 20 points. And when it counted at the end of the game, that's, you know, where they tightened up down there with the the Chargers on the 10-yard line. That's where they play their best. And if they can continue to do that, it doesn't matter how many yards they give up on the ground or through the air. They're going to do really well defensively and as a team. Well, it's funny that getting you on here and then, you know, because you're going to have that perspective from a guy that was a longtime Packer. I'm more from the Patriot point of view. Uh, Rocky Boyman, our other buddy on, on footballbyfootball.com, is, uh, is a, lives in the Cincinnati area. That's not where he played, but does radio there and really understands that sort of perspective going on with that team. Uh, it's funny how each of these different markets that, are, you know, and we, we, later on in the show, uh, we actually have on Joel Dreesen, who who played for the Broncos, and they've got their own sort of 6-0 and squad. It's interesting to sort of hear the different perspectives from the different markets, because I, I think if we were having this conversation a week ago, it's not necessarily, uh, I think the, you know, Bengals felt a little more, uh, you know, uh, Unbeatable, maybe not unbeatable is the right word, but maybe coming off a real high against Seattle. They had a nice performance this week against Buffalo. The Patriots were flying high, blasting through everyone. They're just going to run through the Colts, and they ended up in a little bit more competitive contest. Packers looked clean thus far, uh, and as you mentioned, giving up yards against Rams, but still closing the thing easily. Uh, and and that, but they showed a little chinks, I think, this week. I think if if anything, you can say that each of the teams that still has unblemished records prove that they're they're not none of them are likely to run the table. They all still got some issues, uh, but they're all still clean. And I guess in today's NFL, that's all that matters. Yeah, and I mean, with the Packers specifically, the thing that's most concerning was their one strength of being a vertical, explosive passing game currently isn't the case. They're actually getting right. put in positions where they are not able to go vertical. They're not able to go make those explosive plays like they used to make with guys like Jordy Nelson. And it's sort of causing Aaron to go, go crazy a little bit because he's so used to being able to turn up yards, attack defenses vertically, and now he can. He's holding on to the ball longer. He's getting sacked more, getting pressured more. And that's one thing that's going to be interesting to see how they react to that because it had been for them for so long, their bread and butter go to vertical. Now they, they just don't have that ability with the wide receiving score they currently have out on the field with guys like James Jones and and they, they lost Devontae Adams to uh, another, uh, yeah. it looks like, uh, an ankle there. And the time on Grumbray to an ankle. And so you got, you know, young guys in there. You got a mix of old guys. But nobody that gives you that vertical threat like Jordy Nelson used to. And it really is causing that offense to have to reinvent itself as we go through the season. 
you you guys are dealing with the same thing uh, that that Patriots fans sort of are wringing their hands over because they're starting to just be a couple nicks here, a couple there, where it used to be, oh, we got one guy that's a little bit of a question mark this week. Nah, now we've got two. Nah, this week we got four. <laughs> you know, the Patriots lost a, a, a handful of people last week. Marcus Cannon, uh, who's the fill-in backup left tackle, the backup left tackle, it goes out. So you lose your – starting left tackle, your backup left tackle, pull a guy off practice squad to start a right, move your right tackle to left, uh, lose your your all-pro special teams captain stud and Matthew Slater, Jabal Sheard, the big pass rush specialist. He's lost during the game to an ankle injury. Apparently it's not terribly serious, but still lost him for the game. Uh, the secondary, Terrell Brown, goes on IR for the year. They lose one of their starting cornerbacks. It just hey, kind of has that feel like, you know, yes, record's clean. Yes, still all those talented playmakers, still Tom Brady and, and Coach Belichick and all those things. But it's just a little bit of a a little flag, just a, something to keep an eye on. As you mentioned, so I like that phrase you used, have to kind of reinvent yourself. You, you have to keep plowing through the schedule any way you can, but you may not be able to do it exactly the way you did it a, a couple of weeks prior to that. But uh Anyway, so we're going to kick yeah. off our first segment, one we do each and every week, and it's called What Have We Learned? For my personal What Have We Learned, I always like to uh, try to give a hat tip to a guy that I think doesn't get the credit he deserves. Uh, and I, Because I also, I guess, remember as being a player and then now being a guy that works in the media like yourself, I, I have the, the habit, and I, I understand where it comes from as, as just if someone who's a straight media member and hasn't had that experience to sort of gravitate towards guys who do really well in systems that win or guys that accumulate stats and things like that. And sometimes there are really, really good players in this league that get kind of caught in the cracks. One of the guys that really jumps out to me right now is a really high level, one of the better players at his position in all the NFL, but is not a household name, is Chris Ivory the running back for the Jets. He's a guy that I just kind of sneaky respect, you know, as someone who had to tackle people just as yourself. And you, you wrote a great piece uh, a, a year or so ago for us on footballbyfootball.com about, about tackling Marshawn Lynch. And I know that from his times when he was with the Bills and just sort of the, the respect you have for certain kinds of players because of the way they challenge you. I mean, they bring it, you know, you just, you just really feel that oh, yeah. thump. You feel that they can also run and they can also make cuts. It's not just a one sort of linear skill set. Uh, what I've really liked about Chris Ivory is I, I don't know if this comparison is perfect, but I think it would register at least with fans in the, in, in the new England region. Wes Welker was a guy who I knew very well. Uh, he did not have the national reputation, but if you played in the AFC East, you knew about Wes Welker at the Miami Dolphin. He was so slippery, sure. so tough. He was a, an excellent returner, both in kick and punts. He was a guy that freaked us out because he, he just always got the extra yards. And he was a little underutilized. It was Jay Fiedler, a quarterback at the time. And, you know, he was an undrafted wide receiver coming up their system. But, I mean, it just wasn't a prolific passing off. It doesn't mean he wasn't good. It doesn't mean he couldn't, you know, it wasn't a really tough out in a one-on-one situation. It's just he wasn't in the right place. But then all of a sudden you see him in a better situation, and it's like, wow, there's all that talent, and it's able to sort of come to fruition. I look at Chris Ivory, and uh, Chris Ivory reminds me of that same kind of situation where a year ago, you know, Rex Ryan's really trying to get that running offense going somehow, some way, because Geno Smith is a young and pretty ragged quarterback that they're just trying to figure out and get offense somehow, some way. But they're really bereft of any offensive weapons on the side of the ball at the wide receiver position. Eric Decker is in sort of the 
the top role because they just, they didn't have a lot of other stuff. But now they, you know, they have the complimentary pieces. Brandon Marshall's a stud. Uh, all of a sudden, Jeff Cumberland, who used to be more of a complimentary guy or used to have to have a greater role, is much more complimentary and fits well there. And all of a sudden, this running game looks sick. And Chris Ivory's like, who is this guy? You know, like scrolling through your your roster and going, no, no, guys, he was always that good. He, he really was. But, you know, when – when they when a team can't just pack the box every down and they know there's absolutely no run threat then or pass threat excuse me you don't see them accumulate the stats as much but as a linebacker just like yourself who has to watch film and has to go in and evaluate these guys you notice that little extra pop on the end of the runs you notice the guy that finishes them off always falls forward but then can threaten you with speed too he's not just a straight thumper those are the guys that like you know i don't even know what the hell this the, the box score says i don't know how many he had at the end of the day but that guy there that's a good football player <laughs> that's how i feel about uh, about chris Ivey. and that's and it was very evident to me watching this last weekend's game yeah you know just sort of talking on that same light what was evident to me because i covered the jets in the dolphins game in in uh, england a couple weeks ago and I saw the same thing with Chris Ivory, but on the flip side, I saw how poor a very talented roster in the Miami Dolphins played. Now, I give a lot of credit to Chris Ivory. He was running like a madman. I was literally looking at him, having flashes, seeing a Marshawn Lynch out there. The only difference was the number and the name on the back of the jersey. The styles were very similar. But what I learned this last week is that Dan Campbell, they respect him, the Miami Dolphins, far more than they respected Philbin. And it was reflected in the way they played. They played tougher. Their defensive line started living up to the hype. Cameron Wade goes out and has four sacks. And so in that situation, a lot of times midseason, you make a move to where you fire the head coach, or it's not even that midseason, it's court in the season. And, and a lot of times to me that's like one of those desperate moves because as an organization you really don't know what else to do. You know, you're at a loss. And right. you're sort of right. hip. But regardless if they did that, shoot from the hip or not, the fact is the Miami Dolphins are playing finally, and I'm not going to say what well, games are going to define them, but they're getting closer to finally playing up to their talent level just by virtue right. of taking it down. used to be the tight ends coach and now having him as the interim head coach. And so it goes to show you the little injection of some energy and a leader who they respected, and lo and behold, that is just in a, in a matter of a week elevated their play. I mean, they were like two different teams there. After what I saw when they faced the New York Jets up in England and and when I saw yesterday against the Tennessee Titans, it's almost like, wow, what? who is this? Where did these guys come from? <laughs> but they've always different team, right? Yeah, they literally are a different team with Dan Campbell as their head coach versus Joe Philbin. You know what the thing is is really Dan Campbell and I are within a few months of each other. We're basically the same age, uh, and that really makes me feel weird. You know, <laughs> I don't know how to put that. Cliff Kingsbury. <laughs> Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury, who I played with, is the head coach of a, and he's younger than me, uh, is the head coach of a of a, a Big Twelve school like Texas Tech. That's, you know, big time college football coach. He's down there younger, but he's yeah. out there doing things. And and Dan Campbell's a guy that you know was ran through the league at a similar time as I did. And to think that he just took over an NFL locker room, I think this is an awesome subject that you bring up, just because. I, I a thousand percent agree with you. You're you're right on that. You you could tell that Joe Philbin had lost the team, and you could tell yeah. that this past weekend there was juice. And I think sometimes change brings juice. And I think sometimes because you might feel like I can affiliate, you know, or I can uh, I can see eye to eye with this guy. He's a player like me. Like I can, I he gets me, you yeah. know. And 
that's a good way. That's awesome. And I, I agree that it, it you know, it, it's probably, if you're just going to take a flyer mid season, as you mentioned, you know, the, the organization doesn't have much direction at the time. I totally see going that route. The thing that I'm curious about, and I won't make this my unanswered question for later, but I think it would probably fall in that category. What happens sure. when a guy like Dan, who's been in the league, you know, he's been out of the league for several years now, but he there's probably still guys in the locker room that played when Dan played. What I'm curious to how guys react to him where, yeah, they like him, yeah, they think it's cool, but in the event that things go south, there's a bad week, maybe two bad weeks in a row somewhere down the line, did they give him the respect to not challenge his authority? Because they really understand the story. They know why he's there. You know, this is sort of a desperation move in season. We love Dan. We all love Dan. But are you going to take an ash chewing from Dan? You know, are you because, you know, you're thinking in your head, this guy's gone two months three months from now you know and I don't I, I think he's done an exceptional job by providing some juice and he may be an excellent coach I have no idea but I just wonder from the players perspective you know it, it it would take a really great leadership group in that room to say hey don't challenge that guy he, he's here to lead us he's take he's you know he's gotten a nice opportunity let's make it work for him but there may come that moment where he might have to challenge some of the guys and how will they take it from a guy who you know, you know that guy, and on a teams uh, on some of the teams you played on, oh, the yeah. guy that was just new into coaching but had been a player. It's a tough oh, yeah. crossover, man. I just, I'm, I'm curious for a guy at that age how they'll respond to him once something doesn't go well. Yeah, and I know right now, you know, I know Jordan Cameron and his family really well. The tight end, he was a free agent acquisition for the Dolphins this last year, who was directly coached by Dan Campbell, and he yeah. says. The feeling is everybody, even before he was the head coach, highly respected him and felt. And he, his kind of leadership style reverberated with all the guys to where they all just yeah. he injected into a new life. And so I almost would say, based off of that kind of information, that they would they would stand toe to toe, not in a in a, in a way that where they're questioning or trying to go go against what he's saying, but. Then stand with them and, and, and fight through those hard times instead of questioning his authority, just based off of the respect they have for the guy. Yeah, I, you, you definitely hope it goes that way. I guess I guess the thing in the back of my head is you got to have those strong leaders because there's going to be that one kid in the corner of the locker room, or I say kid, some one one guy who's you know maybe his contract's up after the year. He knows he has things haven't gone well for him, or he's a draft pick that they took that doesn't have the role and kind of sees himself as maybe not you know extending on at this place. And you know they they break they break they break ranks. You know, <laughs> is what what how strong is the room? to sort of pull that guy in or isolate him and stand up for the coach or, you know, just fractures, fissures in the room. I mean, those are the only things that I always think are interesting when I think of how would they, I honestly, I'm I'm putting myself in the situation. How would they respond to me? You know, I, even if the room, they respected me, I know that I saw it. I, if they know that I don't have that juice, isn't it, it isn't the juice really kind of what, what makes you, uh, you know, hold your tongue if you're really pissed off at a coach. I mean, he, he controls your employment. When this guy is a yeah. guy you really, you really, really exp- respect Dan Campbell, but you know he doesn't really control your employment. Like, I wonder if that if that changes <laughs> three or four or five guys in the room. Not not all of them, because all of them will just be better pros than that. It won't go that way. But you always know there might be a straggler in a bad locker room, not necessarily a good one that that might say, yeah, I don't have to listen to this guy because he can't get me fired. 
always a possibility there. The NFL season is well underway, and SeatGeek is the place to get your tickets. SeatGeek does a ton of things that other ticketing sites do not. First, SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of online ticket sellers to create a one-stop shop for tickets. When you shop on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available for that game, all on one page. No need to go anywhere else. Also, they have this great feature called Deal Score. It ranks every ticket on the market with a 1 to 100 value and plots the best deals on a color-coded interactive map. You can easily identify the best ticket values in that building at a glance. Finally, SeatGeek's mobile app makes the ticket buying process seamless and easy. No more typing squiggly letters you can't read into a box like other sites make you do. On SeatGeek, you can store your credit card, and once you find a ticket you want to buy, you just complete the purchase and two, with two quick, easy taps. There's no faster way to buy tickets. To redeem your promo code and save $20 on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app today. Enter our promo code FBF in that app, and SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. That's important. Download that free SeatGeek app today and enter promo code FBF. So, uh, well, we're going to transition here into unanswered questions. Unanswered questions. I really, really, really want to know. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know. I want to know. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Now, with unanswered questions, this is kind of the segment that, you know, we're, we're nearing, we're, we're six, six weeks in, looking here in week seven, we're nearing the halfway point of the season. Shouldn't everything be answered by now? Well, not exactly, not no. quite. And that's, that's what makes it fun, Brady. I love getting into this segment each week because I think sometimes things we thought uh, we knew uh, become unanswered again or things that we thought were answered maybe get opened. For my unanswered question, the thing I, I that – I really liked that this particular matchup happened at this time of the year. Uh, the uh, the Steelers and the Cardinals played this weekend. Steelers got the win, twenty five to thirteen. Excuse me, twenty five to thirteen in Pittsburgh. And I really, the reason I thought that was kind of an intriguing matchup. Obviously, Michael Vick gets injured, leaves the game. They're still able to pull it out. Uh, but it's a it's a matchup of two super resilient, kind of sneaky, talented teams. Both are kind of going through some different stuff. Arizona had been sort of top of the world there for a few weeks, had a step back game, uh, has to go across the country to Pittsburgh, a team that had just gone across the country themselves. Uh, I, I And and won a, a really impressive weird win at the end of the game. And in San Diego, you wrote on that how Big Ben had been a real good aide on the sideline to Michael yeah. Vick, who's now injured. So the, the reason I bring this in, though, is an unanswered question. I still feel like both of those teams, even though we got to see them side by side, uh, the fact that it was a difficult road week for, for Arizona, they didn't respond particularly well for it, as, as prolific as that offense has been, only to put up 13. Against the Steelers' defense, it's good, but more opportunistic. This is not Steel Curtain of the 70s. Uh, I, I have an unanswered question really with both of them because it's it just sort of this confluence of, of issues. They kind of both butted heads and they pop out the other way, each going their separate directions. I'm still under, a little unsure of both. Arizona, I think, still has an excellent opportunity in the, in the NFC. Green Bay is the class, uh, but after them, I, uh, we got to love, you got to appreciate what Carolina did going out and winning in Seattle, but I don't think that's the Seattle of old. They still may figure it out, but at least the, the crew that walked on the field 
uh, this past Sunday, it did still have issues. So I still feel like there's, there's an opportunity for Arizona to be in the mix. Uh, and same with the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm not ready to be scared or, you know, scared. It's, it's not my, it's not my issue anymore. I'm not playing, but I, I'm saying that from a New England perspective, <laughs> they like, they like to look out at the teams they should worry about. And I, sure. I don't know it. I don't, I, Pittsburgh is such a tantalizing team. You just really have to tip your hat to them, how they, they went across the country, won that San Diego game with some adversity, took, took this team at home with not only their second quarterback, but then their third and knock off a really good Arizona team. You wonder if they're going to peak. I mean, at some point, big Ben's going to come back and all of a sudden is, will they become sort of the fad pick? It's like, this is, this is, this is that group. But there's still enough chinks in the armor to me for, for the, the Pittsburgh defense. Not what we saw in their performance against Arizona. That was very impressive. But I think there's still some vulnerabilities with that particular team and the, with the right matchup, which, again, in my head, I'm thinking New England. Uh, but anyway, that, so my big unanswered question was two really good teams that I have a tremendous amount of respect for in this league, two of the better really just organizations, uh, knocked heads that came out. And I still don't know if I know a lot, but I still have a hat tip for both of them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, my my big question has to do with the Seattle Seahawks. You brought, you brought them up with their performance yesterday against the Panthers. Again, the fourth time this season, going into the fourth quarter and losing the lead and losing the game. And that's, yeah, that's how many crazy. losses they have, as a matter of fact, four. And so my question yeah. is, is are they going to peak too late? And when they do actually peak, are they going to be the team that at least I thought going into the season, which was I, I put them as my number one team uh, in terms of their chances of winning the Super Bowl. I thought the addition of, of Jimmy Graham would be huge, which, I mean, he almost seems more like a liability in the running game now than an actual benefit in the passing game, almost so much more of a liability in the running game to where it's like it neutralizes his, his effectiveness in the passing game because they don't run the ball as well with him in there. And so, and then defensively, they're they're not getting beat physically. I would say they're getting more just mentally breakdown. But yesterday was the past event, also for a touchdown that put the Carolina Panthers up, but hopefully won them the game. Was a breakdown in the secondary. But the question I have is, are they going to clean that kind of stuff up in time? Yeah, it's an interesting issue that you bring up because I have this thing in my head where I kind of treat them a little like New England where I know New England went through a really stru- tough stretch a year ago and, and it looked b- bleak, but I can still go around that room and talk about, you know, the, 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 the guys that I really respect, the Bobby Wagner's, the Wrights, the, uh, the, uh, the Cam Chancellor's, the Earl Thomas's, the, the, the Richard Sherman's, they're all still there. So I think in the back of my yeah. head, even when I see them struggle, there's this sort of little sneaky belief that they'll figure it out. Good coaching staff smart, sure. tough, uh, has, has handled adversity, but I mean, you're right to just simply put them on the table and say, what are they right now? What do they keep putting out there as performances? It, it, it wouldn't be good enough, uh, against, you know, no. have six, seven, eight teams in a league. So yeah, it, it, you're right. It's sort of this race against the clock. They probably will figure themselves out. Are they going to do enough damage to their own record to where they put themselves in a real bad first round matchup on the road or something like that? Or, 
or, you know, yeah. something along those lines. It's, it's, it's tough. And actually yesterday, uh, Jimmy Graham had one of his most productive days as a, as a Seattle Seahawk. He actually had a pretty big game, but you're right. You mentioned sort of the issues with the running game because he's exclusively a wide receiver essentially now. So they, yeah. I think the problem they have is because they don't really feel like their tight end is a tight end, which is, is just accurate. I mean, it's just what it is. Uh, Wilson sure. sits there n- near the formation and he's a good blocker, but we're not talking about, you know, a glass eater either. So there's, there's, uh, <laughs> the, the things that always made Russell Wilson better, the things that opened up a lot of those downfield shot plays to guys like curse and to guys like Doug Baldwin. And now Lockett got one, one, uh, this, this past weekend, but those are the things that really sure. make that thing tick. But in the absence of a running game, who are they? Like, and that's the thing that I have a hard time sort of putting a finger on. Uh, I, we had them in our yeah. locks uh, this weekend, and that was a game that we lost on. And I think just not being able to predict – if you can tell me, you know, they can rush for 150 to 200 yards a game, well, then everything – you know, world is your oyster. You're back, you're back to Seattle football. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, the clock consumption's better. Uh, start feeling better about the defense too, you know, all those kinds of things. But because that one thing that's the, so central to everything they do and, you know, they're getting 40 or 50 yards and 12 carries out of Marshawn Lynch and uh, the other, the other kid's done a nice job, but he's getting, you know, five or 10 carries himself. It's just not the, the same old deal. And all of a sudden everything rests on Russell's shoulders. And is, he, I don't think he's that kind of player. I think he's special. I think he's, he's damn good, but all the pieces around you got to be moving in the same direction. If they all stop simultaneously and it's like, Hey, Russell, go, go throw it 30 times and win it for us. Then it's like, oh, okay, never mind. Little different situation, at least in my head. So you bring up an interesting point there. Um, anyway, we, we got a, we got a bail. Unfortunately, this was, this is an awesome show. Brady Papenga. Thanks so much, man, for coming on. Awesome insight as well. Have a great, have a great week, bud. You too, man. We'll be in touch. Really happy today to be joined by Joel Dreesen, a former teammate of mine with the Jets, a guy that played for a long time in the NFL with both the Texans and Broncos. Thought it'd be really cool to have Joel on today uh, with the Broncos continuing to surge. I'm doing just fine. Yeah, we were we were teammates for maybe an offseason in training camp very briefly. It, we both saw sort of the pain of that that uh, Mangini training camp. Those, those were not fun back in the day. I thought I was an old guy at the time, and I'm thinking, gosh, I think I'm about done with the NFL and uh, <laughs> to go through one of those. But uh, that was hell. Um, I was pretty fired up to uh, to catch you on here for for really those two two, two big reasons. Your former team, uh, the Broncos, have, have really been, uh, I think, surprising a lot of people. I mean, I, obviously, I'm coming here from that perspective where – uh, you know, we have uh, in the New England market, they're, they're always looking for sort of who they think is a, is a threat and then looking for that threat to fail. <laughs> and then you get all the hot sports takes about Peyton's done and all that and all that stuff. Uh, sort of what's what's the feeling out there sort of living in that market? I know you went to Colorado State and uh, obviously had a lot of a lot of great years out there with the Broncos. What's really the feeling with the team? Is there a, a panic with with man in the arm and all that? Or, or is it more just sort of this is this is how things are and it's a tough team with a great defense and they'll fi- they'll figure out a way. I would say that this whole sports environment, this whole well NFL environment, Denver is certainly a football town. They're cautiously optimistic and a lot okay. of that surrounds the uh, the un- the shaky performance of Peyton Manning up to date. So they, uh, I mean, you think 2012, 2013, and 2014, Peyton was looking every bit as if uh, he was the Hall of Famer that he is. 
But this right. year, you know, he's he struggling, struggling a little bit, especially with the turnovers, uh, throwing interceptions, and it's the timing of of his turnovers that is so it's hurting his team. He'll have an interception right before the half when they're getting the ball back at halftime. And, uh, I, I'm thinking of the Vikings game. The Vikings will go down and score, and it, it makes the game a lot closer than what it should be. In this last game against the Browns in overtime, he served one up right to uh, the linebacker Mingo and put his team in a really precarious position. But the defense is absolutely opportunistic, just (laughs) exceptional at bailing him out of these situations. Um, These guys, they're good for a couple turnovers every single game, if not a score. Uh, They're relentless getting to the quarterback. They have exceptional depth. Uh, Vaughn Miller and DeMarcus Ware and Shaq Barrett have been outstanding on outside linebacker. Uh, And those guys on the back end, uh, Darian Stewart, and David Bruton, Chris Harris, Akeem Talib, those guys have been really, really good at safety. So uh, the name of the game is in Denver right now is the defense, and everybody is so right. worried about the offense, <laughs> the meshing of the minds, the meshing of the minds as far as uh, Peyton Manning and, and Gary Kubiak. It's interesting that that sort of things have taken that turn, and and I I remember I think it was the Chiefs game earlier in the season where Denver traveled out there. He had a, a Manny had a pretty terrible first half, and there was a lot of you know, Twitter chatter, and then you know writers that I know and follow that were really fired up about this idea. They got Peyton, you know, under where he doesn't need to be because he's too old to get out for the stretch runs, and they got him doing dash pass and to his left against his arm side and all that. And, you know, life's going to be better if they can just get him back in the gun, let him run his offense as he wants to. And I think there were some, some seeds of truth to that, but you, you bring up a really interesting point in that, okay, that didn't completely solve everything. Uh, they still have had some sort of old issues creep back in with, with just untimely turnovers. And, and that was something that had been there, Obviously, a much modest, much more modest part of his overall portfolio. The dude's one of the best quarterbacks ever. But it is something that has crept back in that was, I think, unrelated to which particular scheme uh, he's played in, just the, the untimely turnover deal. Uh, one thing that I'm always curious with, and, and I know you played in that offense when it was it was a little bit different, when it was more you and Jacob Tammy, sort of a one-two punch there at tight end, and you guys were nice complimentary, play, complimentary players uh, in that offense. It's, it had changed since then where it became sort of very tight in focus with Julie is Thomas for those couple of years he was there. Uh, now Owen Daniels seems to have sort of revert back to sort of that more complimentary role and the tight end isn't quite as much of the focus, even though Gary Kubiak's now running that offense. So I'm just curious from your point of view, what what changes do, are you really aware of from someone that worked in that offense at one point? Well, maybe not that particular offense, but at least with some of those same Broncos teammates. From a tight end perspective, what's what's going on there that might be different than before? Well, the main difference is just philosophical differences. I mean, everybody knows how Peyton liked to operate his his offense. He liked a no huddle. He liked getting getting lined up, seeing what the defense was going to do, using all of the play clock, and getting his offense in the best play for what the defense was doing. That's that's how he liked to play. Where Coach Kubiak, he prefers to huddle huddle it up, eat up some clock, you know, run the ball on first down, run the ball on second down keep your third downs manageable and hit them up with some, some play action and those bootlegs that uh, quarterbacks like Matt Schaub were able to make the Pro Bowl on and become a Pro Bowl MVP. You know? And right. Joe Flacco had an outstanding year doing that stuff also. So uh, there's a philosophical differences. And I, I was one of those people who believed that this offense was going to help Peyton. I had no idea he was going to struggle 
under center like that and, and turning his back to the defense with some of those bootlegs and play action like he has. But I guess it's just not something he's comfortable with. It's He's learning a new way to play quarterback as far as a progression. Okay, here's my first read, second read, third read, uh, kind of going through his checklist post-snap. He was always the guy yeah. pre-snap really preferred to know where the ball was going before the before it was ever hiked, and that way he could uh, get that ball out of his hands very quickly and stare down receivers, where now where he's staring down guys, and you got Charles Woodson flying all over the place uh, <laughs> intercepting him. So uh, it's it's just the philosophical changes that they're really – it's a work in progress to, right now, unfortunately. Right, it's 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 an interesting way to put it, but I guess from someone's perspective, for you know, played in that for that team and in that in that division, the AFC West, for for a couple of years, uh, it, it's still, I, I don't know, just as sort of maybe as a matter of respect that I, I figure out that that or I figure that Peyton Manning will somehow 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 some way figure it out, and they'll be competitive. And as you mentioned, sort of that litany of of really good players that they have on the defensive side of the ball, and and, and even even the skill position guys on the offense. We've seen some running game pr- uh, production there from both Hilleman and uh, and Anderson. That you know, I, I think that was maybe one of the big question marks coming into the season. Even in these moments where they've stumbled yet, but yet still won, even against the Browns, they found good, good running game production. Can you sort of just for for non football fans that are that are sort of hearing this, uh, hearing us just sort of chat about football, what would be a little bit different from a Gary Kubiak sort of run scheme than the run schemes that Peyton would have been directing uh, in previous uh, group or previous coaching administrations? Sure, great question. So. Peyton was always – he would check to a run if he had a favorable box. So if he had five guys in the box, meaning, you know, four down linemen, one linebacker, because he's going to have, a, you know, a two-by-two two formation. I'm probably getting too technical here. But he would check to run no, when the box was fav- favorable. And he was in the shotgun. And he had one offset back. And, you know, he had a handful of runs he could get to out of those formations. Where Gary Kubiak, he likes to huddle it up. He likes to mix up the personnel between – you know, two tight ends and two running backs, you know, one tight end, three wide receivers. He, he really likes to mix and match the guys and make all the run plays look the same out of various personnel groups and various formations. Um, so with that being done, it's, it's more of a outside zone scheme where there's a lot of double teams on the line of scrimmage and offensive linemen, tight ends are trying to get up to, to that second level by taking care of the down, the down linemen first. So I guess – Gary Kubiak likes to call a play and run it, even though it's not the most favorable look. He believes that, look, sometimes you just have to be better than the guy across from you. And it's important just to to beat on someone physically uh, throughout the course of the game. By the time the fourth quarter runs around, those guys don't want to be have their legs chopped out from underneath them anymore. And the the defense begins to tire. And uh, like I just said, where Peyton liked to check to the runs when the, the numbers were favorable. Yeah, it's interesting where he's such a he's such a like a a guy who wins the mental game, and I can imagine how that that would be frustrating if you're so used to saying the reason I'm better is because I'll dissect this thing before it even happens, and it's not so much predetermined like he's staring it down, but just that he's he's pulled the thing apart so he knows where the vulnerability is, so you know he kind of has an idea where he's going to go, and all of a sudden. As an older player, you're you're in a little little less little less comfortable situation, sort of the teaching the old dog new tricks kind of deal. But one last thought I wanted to get from you, which you know I I I spent 
most of my career in New England, but they got to come down to, to New York for a few years. And I know you were there briefly, as you mentioned with me. And uh, I, I always love to get this perspective for, you know, the large listenership that we have in the New England area of what it was like to be a Jet. Because I think there's this perception that it's, it was, you know, it's chaotic and it's just a clown show. And, oh, yeah, but I think a part of that comes from the perception of Rex. And obviously he came after we were there. Uh, just talking about the, the difficulty of being on a roster that's in that particular division that spends their off seasons, their training camps, their in season stuff, just doing nothing, but it all, it, at least it felt this way to me, really sort of hyper-focused on New England. Cause they always said at the top of that heap, uh, can you just talk a little bit about just sort of the little brother persona that there is in that division and what it's like to sort of always look North and see that other crew. That's that's a kind of a tough question for me to answer because obviously my my time with the Jets I was a rookie in 2005. Right. Uh, right. You know, played played special teams, I contributed some on offense, but man, Matt, we were not very good. We were we were 4 and 12. We had <laughs> exactly. we had crazy crazy injuries at the quarterback position and we we struggled that year, but you're right. It was always what are the Patriots up to? They were always they always set the standard in that division and obviously how are we going to beat Tom Brady? That was always the conversation. Uh, Herm Edwards was our head coach, and he he hated that yep. we were kind of looked at like, hey, they just get the Jets to the fourth quarter, and they'll find a way to mess it up. That was that was kind right. of that was our label, and I mean for the most part that year it was true. Um, and then come Man- Mangini comes in, and being a Belichick disciple, he clearly tried to do everything exactly like Bill, uh, maybe to, <laughs> exactly. to, the, to the upteenth degree, but it didn't work out very right. well. I didn't, no, didn't end up making the team. So maybe maybe you can speak to that. But I, I remember very vividly sitting in meeting after meeting with special teams coach Mike Westoff. And, you know, he, yes. he used some choice words for the Patriots and how he felt about those <laughs> yes, guys. Yes, he did. Uh, but it, uh, it was fun. I, I I enjoyed my time as a Jet until until Eric Mangini came along, really. <laughs> Exactly. Well, you have an experience uh, very similar to what I had as as a as a Ram. I mean, I I was sort of a cup of coffee as a as a young player, uh, trying to get in the league with St. Louis. And but I always felt it was kind of cool, even though I didn't play there much that first year, and then you know spent most of my career other places. It was always kind of cool, a little extra respect about a place that was so different than every other place I was at. You just see in that summer you saw with Mangini and how he ran things just had to be night and day of what you saw both in Denver and Houston. And I, I, that's, again, that was not, it's not a true semblance of what New England was, but they were trying to do a facsimile. And I, it's just something to me that was, I think it was rewarding uh, in that I'd spent, you know, six years with the Patriots before I came down to New York. And you always kind of wonder how you're perceived. And then you get to go into another locker room and realize, you know, just as you mentioned, like everything was, how are they going to stop Tom? How are they going to stop Tom? And when you're in the locker room with those guys, you, you wonder if it's really that hyper-focused. You wonder how people actually perceive you. But uh, I was almost a little put off by the fact that it's the middle of June. It's the middle of May. I mean, we got we were a long time till we're going to play a game. And then we're having meetings in the middle of an afternoon and in June about the Patriots. I'm like, good Lord, guys, we played twice. I mean, we, we'll, we'll catch them. We'll, we'll, we'll game plan for them when it actually matters. But it, just that, that crazy hyper-focus. Um, one Sort of one final thought I, I was curious about with you. Uh, obviously, swinging back here to the, the Denver situation. Uh, if, if things sort of continue on this path 
and it, it's very much a Denver-led, or excuse me, a defensive-led crew. How how do they navigate the playoffs? How how do they sort of get through this thing as they're presently constituted? Or do you think things would have to change for them to advance further than maybe a, a wild card or a first round kind of deal? Yeah, there's no doubt things have got to change. Is it, the only thing they truly need to fix on the offensive side of the football, football is just stop turning it over. Uh, right. There hasn't been a single game this year, all six games they've played, Peyton Manning's had a really bad timed interception and three games. He's been picked six to the house and right. the defense has found ways to overcome those mistakes, whether they get put, put out in the field and sudden change and they have a really short field to, to defend or all of a sudden they're defending at midfield in overtime when all they need, all the Browns need is a field goal to win the ball game. So it's really simple. Peyton Manning just needs to become a game manager. He doesn't need to be the hall of famer. He, he once was, or here he is for that matter. Uh, he just needs to not turn the ball over. He needs a little help up front. The young offensive line, they, they put some pressure on him. He's taken some shots early. And Demarius Thomas, he got a huge payday in the offseason. He's had a, a string of drops here that uh, the fans in Denver are losing their patience with him. So he needs his playmakers right. to bail him out. It's, it's time for those guys to return the favor. You know, Demarius got paid because Peyton certainly threw him the rock. Now, now Damaris needs to return the favor to Peyton and, and make some of the tough catches and make some of the explosive plays that we're accustomed to seeing to, to help out his quarterback who, to be all honest, he, he just doesn't have the arm that he used to. He can't make a lot of the throws, and uh, he has never, you know, the, the definition of mobility by any means. So uh, he needs right. a little help from his buddies on offense. <laughs> Well, it happens. It happens to every player, but uh, I, I live in an area that'll be hyper-focused on it, and they like to be snarky and like to sort of do the hot sports take about that they're done and they're finished, and there's just that little thing in the back of my head that says if they can fix it and Peyton can you know, nullify sort of the turnover issue, that defense looks pretty sick. It's always health. We'll see if it sort of holds together. I think the one thing I'm happy about is in watching Denver this next in these next several weeks, we won't have to watch a broadcast of – a game at Cleveland where that guy's beating on the sign. <laughs> Does that come through the screen with you? Yeah, where you, right? where you, it just sounds like some dude's beating a trash can throughout the whole game. It was so distracting. I want to just put it on mute. Uh, anyway, hey, man, thank you so much for coming on. Awesome insight. Uh, enjoy the rest of the year. I, I hate you because you get to be in Colorado. I, I miss going out there and uh, skiing. It's uh, still a couple months to go here, but snowflakes will start to fall. Yeah, exactly right. We, we got to hook up and do some hunting at some point. I just got back from Africa in August, and now all of a sudden I'm busy trying to forge out a new career so thanks so much for listening to the football by football podcast as always that fbf podcast can be found for streaming or download on footballbyfootball.com or blogtalkradio.com you can download the fbf podcast on itunes stitcher and on the TuneIn radio app for daily insightful stuff from guys like brady and myself and many others make sure to check out the footballbyfootball.com facebook page and give us a follow on twitter at FB by FB. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.